0: Amen. Thanks for leading us. Great job. Welcome to Emmaus Church community. My name is Nathan. I'm so happy to see you here. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. I'm going to be uh, sharing a story towards the end of the sermon this morning. We're going to kind of respond to a truth that we've been talking about for a few weeks and then look at a story to try to tie it all together. And the story is in the very first part of the book of Exodus. Uh, The Bible begins with a book called Genesis, and then the very next book is a a book called Exodus, so you can turn there if you like, and we'll eventually arrive in that place. Um, Also, every week, our kids' ministry produces this children's chatter newsletter. It's really well done. There's some tools for parents to discuss the topics that are taught in the kids' ministry and in the main gathering, which always parallel here at Emmaus, Um, over lunch or on the drive home. And then there's some specific information regarding the calendar, which changes a bit over the holidays. So if you have a, if you have a kid in our middle school or high school ministry, I mean our kids or our, our middle school ministry, be sure to grab this today. And then finally, if you're on an aisle seat and can grab a basket and hand it down, that would be helpful. If this is your first time here or your first time in a while, welcome. I hope you feel really at home here. I hope you are challenged and encouraged by this experience this morning. If you'd like to hand off your email address uh, we'd be grateful for it. We use a email midweek newsletter that we send out, and um, and that's what, uh, that's why that's so helpful to us. All right. I see you less well when I'm seated. And uh, so people will say, were they at church? I'm like I don't even know. I didn't notice if they were at church. It's like I have a, a worse vantage point or something, so I'm just trying to soak it in, see who's here today. It's great to see you guys. I hope that this is a... A powerful morning for you and that this marks the beginning of what will be a really full and um, meaningful weekend or week. All right. Uh, What do you see in this picture? Yeah, people. A lot of phones. What's going on here do you think? I didn't hear what? A A marathon. Yeah, maybe a marathon. I hadn't thought of that. Some Something else? Other ideas? A parade, maybe? The Pope, Pope, potentially? That would actually be fantastic. Let's go with the Pope, because that'll really help my sermon. Um, (laughs) That would just fit in so perfectly with what I want to say, actually. I don't know what's happening in this picture. Somebody sent it to me. Something really cool is happening, though. I know that much. I can zoom in a little bit. Here we go. Everybody's looking in the same direction, in case it's hard for you to see. Everybody's got a cell phone out. Everybody's, I mean, most people look pretty excited, about what's happening. I don't know what's going on, but they've got that temporary fencing up like they do at parades, as Daryl said, or when there's sort of a red carpet event or something important's happening and got to keep the the people of the land away from the more important ones, I guess. Um, But here's what's remarkable about this picture, okay? Here's what's remarkable. She is remarkable in this picture. Do you see her? Why? Why is she remarkable? She's in. She's watching it. She is fully present to whatever it is. Let's just say it's the Pope who's coming down the street, right? She is fully in. And you see a completely different level of serenity and appreciation and, I don't know, engagement in... in um, In her face, she is the only one who appears to be fully experiencing whatever it is that all these people have gathered to be a part of. She's the only one, this is important, she's the only one who's truly outside of herself in this moment. The person who sent this picture to me said this, I want to be like her, experiencing something fully instead of trying to convince her friends that she's really experiencing something. Looking at the world through wide open eyes instead of through a four-inch screen. Noticing something for its own sake instead of trying to come up with a witty caption to add to the filtered image that she posts on Instagram. Earlier this year, I was on a merry-go-round with my youngest at Disneyland. And seated on the horse right in front of us. We just couldn't not notice her. She was like four feet in front of us, was this young woman who spent the entire ride taking pictures of herself. The entire ride. The entire ride. It's pose, smile, pucker, adjust, shoot a picture, check it out, do something, uh, do it again. How about this angle? Again, it was, it was remarkable. And it was the whole ride and the exclamation point at the end of the sentence was that when the ride ended she stayed on her horse while everyone else exited because she was still just so in she didn't even notice apparently till everyone started to like shuffle past her that the ride was over and what struck me was the radical difference between the little kids on the ride and this young woman on the ride the little kids were all in And the young woman was also on the ride, but the reality is she missed the ride. She just entirely missed the ride. The kids were on the ride to experience the ride. The young woman was on the ride as far as I could tell based on my observation in order to take cute pictures of herself on the ride so that she could share those pictures with all of her friends or followers. And the irony was she just missed the ride. And so as we went around and around and around on this merry-go-round, I'm watching the little kids. And it was just the little, the little kids were saying, look at this. Look at this. Just delighted. And in contrast, the young woman, it was like she was saying, look at me. Look at me. Right. Today is the last Sunday before Advent begins. And we're wrapping up this new series. We're wrapping it up. It's only a three-week series called Buck the Trend. Um, I urged us through this short series to take an evaluative, reflective, hopefully not a judgmental. That certainly isn't the the heartbeat behind it, but just a, hey, let's step back and, and take a look at the way our culture works around us, the way our culture begins to affect us, and try to ask some good questions. So in week one, I urged us to realize that though much of life is out of our control, though much of what we experience is out of our hands, That not everything is out of our hands. We looked at the story of Daniel, who had his whole life taken away from him, but still honored the Lord because he refused to admit that everything was out of his hands. There are some cultural expectations that should be soundly rejected. In other words, we should buck the trend. And the way I suggested that we approach that is to rebel against unhealthy cultural trends, which... We have a long history of doing, but more than that, or in addition to that, to create a better alternative going forward. Not just to rebel against, but then to create a better way forward. Last week, we took this one step deeper, and we considered one of the most central teachings in Scripture, which is when God says to the people of Israel, Be holy as I am holy. In other words, we're to buck the trends, not just to be different. But in order to be holy, to grow into the image of God, which is the image in which we were created. Not to conform any longer to patterns, behaviors, rituals of this world, but to be transformed by the full um, devotion to God. So unwritten, we looked at unwritten cultural rules last week, like busier is better. Busier is a sign of actual success. Or bigger is better. Is better, and, and we simply said that these need to be carefully evaluated. These are, um, these are infiltrating our lives in a way that we, we have a really difficult time recognizing because we're swimming in this water of the culture. But when life is too busy, we have no time for reflection. And when life is too big, we have no room for others, no room to help others, with our budgets, with our time. Today I want to go directly at the core of what we've been talking about. Just go directly at what I think is the core issue. Because we cannot only be satisfied with evaluating our culture and pointing out what's wrong with things out there. That would be an incomplete treatment of this issue. We must also look honestly and deal decisively with ourselves. We must be courageous enough to look inward and deal Well, deal honestly, deal uh, gracefully but truthfully with what's wrong in here as well with, with our hearts. The people of God have always been called to reject sin. The people of God have always been called to reject godlessness. And one of the things that makes Jesus so challenging is that he applies that big message to me, to me, to the individual more than anyone. He says, you know what your real problem is? It's not the government. It's not your neighbor. It's not your boss. It's not the religious institution. It's you. It's your selfish heart. That's your real problem. And the ultimate reason I have come to the world is to deal with that, with your selfish heart, with this sin problem. So here's the plan this morning. I want to look at this issue of selfishness. If we just say selfishness, then um, we we already have an ability to set that aside and say, that's not me. We've developed that. Because since we were little, we were told, don't be selfish. So I'm going to try to speak about, I'm going to try to look at selfishness through three different lenses and see if those lenses reveal the selfishness that I have, the selfishness that we have, maybe in a way that's a little bit more clear, honest, and hopefully, ultimately, more helpful. First, let's consider this idea of selfishness through the lens of our culture's ever-expanding view of sexuality. Okay, We'll just get right at that to start. You guys ready? Could it be that at least part of what's affected trends in our culture, like the sexual revolution of the 1960s, like the explosion of industrial pornography in the 1980s, like all the safe sex campaigns of the 1990s and the current fascination with the definition or redefinition or choosing of gender, could it be that at least part of what's driven these trends is a desire to separate our sexuality from any kind of outside authority over our sovereign self? Could it be that it might come down to something as simple as what right does anyone else have to say anything about my body? This is my sovereign self. It's myself and it's sovereign. In other words, it's the first place. It's the most important. Christians are sometimes criticized for talking too much about uh, sexuality, for focusing uh, too much about sexuality um, but that's, frankly, it's kind of a hard position to take from a scriptural standpoint because our sexuality is consistently named as a big part of life throughout scripture that should be affected by our spirituality. It's a pretty limited spirituality, in other words, that doesn't have anything to say about our sexuality. Wouldn't you agree? How good would that kind of spirituality be? For, for us, people who are sexual beings. Now, it's got to say at least something about our sexuality. The problem with Christianity, or the problem isn't that Christianity has something to say about our sexuality. The problem is that we don't want anyone saying anything about our sexuality that we don't like. That's the real problem. And that's because we think we're in charge, right? If you look at selfishness through the lens of sexuality... We sound like a bunch of three-year-olds who are saying, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. Second, um, let's look at the issue of selfishness through another lens. Let's look at it through the lens of social media and see if this helps us bring any kind of clarity, right? It's an absolutely huge trend. Um, I was talking to somebody recently about how this feels like this trend towards social media, and by that I mean sharing information through really informal, kind of unregulated, really easily accessible means like cell phones, uh, has just sort of enveloped our whole culture. It's almost like those of us who are working with people like we're not even exactly sure how this is affecting us entirely but we know it is affect everything's being affected by this dating is being affected by this uh, the news and how we get it is affected by this the political process the presidential campaign totally affected by this fundraising is affected by this our fitness programs are affected by this dinner with your family is probably affected by social media everything is including why we take pictures Uh, I come from a family that takes a lot of pictures. My mom has done a phenomenal job documenting the story of our family and and recording it in in photo albums, and I'm so grateful for that. Forever it seems that you took a picture in order to remember a moment, right? You would hear people use this phrase, I just want to hold on to that. And so it's your daughter's first birthday party, and it's the first time she's going to try to have some cake, and she, you just want to see that look on her face. And then you want to capture that look. You want to hold on to that look when she tastes that frosting for the first time, right? Now it seems increasingly things have changed a bit, and we take pictures in order to not hold on to the moment, but in order to share the moment with others, which is beautiful, isn't it? That's a great thing. I think that's a really beautiful thing. It's super fun. The only way really that you can make a great experience better is to share it with somebody else. So this is a beautiful thing that we, how great is it that you can share a sunset with somebody in another part of the world? I think that's fantastic. How beautiful is it that you can take a picture uh, of, like, your kid rock climbing with some friends in order to share it with people in another part of the country that also appreciate that. How, be- how great that you can share that first birthday party experience with your grandparents who live in Iowa or wherever. The problem um, can come, it doesn't always come, but it can come when we're not just taking a picture of a really great, actual, true, real experience, but we're trying to, we slip into trying to sort of fabricate experiences, in order to take pictures, in order to share them, in order to make ourselves look cooler than we are. The problem comes when we slip into, in other words, this untruthful pattern of presenting ourselves in a way that's different from our actual self. When, that, when, when our actual self is not presented, but we, we build and engineer and manipulate and create and cultivate this presented self, And that that becomes different from our actual self. Well, now we've slipped into a pattern which has always existed. It's always been possible to present yourself in a way that's more favorable than you actually are. But now it's really, really easy and it's really, really common. And so we have a whole culture of people growing up where this is normal. There's like the real me and then there's the me that I put um, out there for, for everybody to see. Social media doesn't make us selfish. We're already selfish. Social media just is this constant reminder that we can sort of feed into our selfishness by, um, by presenting ourselves the way we want to present ourselves. Forever, if there was a picture of you on, 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 on the television or on a screen or in the newspaper, it was because somebody else took it. But now a lot of pictures of us are the ones that we ourselves have taken. And so we're just building right in this really strong possibility to, to express selfishness. You could look at the idea of selfishness through the lens of social media and, and I think it comes through really clearly. A lot of it is just look at me. Everybody look at me. Everybody like me. Yeah. Um, can you imagine? We're already such a self-conscious people. Do you remember seventh grade? Do you remember how self-conscious you were? Can you imagine doing seventh grade with cell phones? I mean, that's brutal. It's, this is a hard thing. Uh, I don't mean to be like, criticizing something out of hand as this is a difficult reality uh, as uh, krista pointed out to me you, you put this picture online as a seventh grader and you have a quantifiable judgment of your acceptance among your peer group the number the amount of likes that you get that's really challenging that would have been hard for me in seventh grade right if i have a, a lens through which to understand that however i hope that's helpful that um, what this may be feeding is not really the true me, it's this presented me. It's What it might be sort of stoking is a sort of selfishness in me that I should be rejecting anyway. I should be refunneling that into some healthy way anyway. Because it's really not about look at me and like me, at least in this sense. One more lens, let's consider this. Let's, let's consider looking at the topic of selfishness through the lens of the church. Um, I read a long article uh, a couple weeks ago that quoted a sociologist named Philip Reef who's probably best known for a book he wrote in 1966 called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, which includes some really remarkable insights into our present-day culture, considering he wrote it in the 60s. Reef argues that American culture is driving so hard, this is in the 60s, it's driving so hard towards consumerism that it was just going to build and build and build and build and then reach its apex and then crash in this epic disappointment, And that like a bunch of children whose toys have broken, the American culture would be in need of people to come alongside them and make them feel better. And so he talks about a culture that moves from a consumeristic culture to a therapeutic culture and the need to feel better. And that feeling better would become the goal. And that feeling better wouldn't be based on some sort of objective truth, but feeling better would be based on individual fulfillment. And that's what would matter the most. Later in his life, he died in 2006, but later in his life he reflected on his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and he made this, uh, um, this observation. He said, Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man was born to be pleased. Now that's just one guy's perspective, but it caught my attention. Because it sure feels like there's a really high priority in American Christianity on personal comfort, on being pleased, on everything sort of being about the way I want it to be. Uh, In an effort to reach our culture, which is good, in an effort to welcome people uh, into the church, which is important and Christian, in an effort to communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to people, which is what Jesus did largely with the way he told stories. Unfortunately, the shadow side of that is that the church has oriented much of the message of Jesus around people's felt needs. So, so much of what we say as the church sort of sounds like Jesus can help you have the best possible life. And the problem with that is that that's the exact same line that the luxury car salesman uses about his product. This car can help you experience the best possible life. Because by that, we don't typically think. By best possible life, we don't think sacrifice and service. We think comfort and, 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 and uh, happiness and affluence. And so, boy, when we position the gospel within the context of that familiar sales pitch... We, we, we do a disservice to the gospel, and we also, ultimately, what we're doing is we're feeding the selfishness of the church, of us. Reef's words, that sociologist, I think are quite an indictment. Uh, much of the time it seems the church is less interested in being saved and more interested in being pleased. I think it's an indictment of us and of me. Selfishness, considered through the lens of the church, please me, please me. And that, that's a lot of information, and frankly, it's just some of the things that I've been thinking about as I've tried to apply the message of this Buck the Trend series to my own life in the last few weeks. Because if you come right up to me and say, um, man, you're kind of a selfish person, there's a degree to which I'd agree with that, and there's also a degree to which I would say, um, I don't think so. But as I look at different parts of my life through these different lenses, all oh, it comes out pretty clearly that there are ways in which I'm still really trying to indulge Nathan, the individual. So um, I hope that's helpful. Let me end by taking us to the Word. Let's look at the first page of Exodus together. And I'm just going to summarize the first three chapters of Exodus and tell you this story. But I hope you'll have it out in front of you and that you'll see it in context and uh, that you'll return to it later in the week. This is the story. It's a great story. The first three chapters of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. Long time ago, about 1400 years before Jesus was born, the Hebrew people, who are the people who descended from Abraham, were a rapidly growing minority group in the world's superpower, which was a country called Egypt. The king of Egypt, who was called the Pharaoh, he, he begins to grow increasingly nervous about the uh, population growth of this minority group. And so he does two things. One, he, he declares that all Hebrews will become slaves in Egypt. So he basically interns this whole race of slaves. And the second thing he does is he initiates kind of a quiet, um, um, what's the word, um, pro- <laughs> process of, of eliminating the people by saying that the all the Hebrew male children will be killed, right? A genocide. So that's happening, and this young woman, this Hebrew woman, has her third child. She's got a son and a daughter already, and her third child is a son. She knows that under this new law, he is to be drowned. So she hides him for three months. She can't hide him any longer, and so she puts him in a basket and puts him in the Nile River, across the river from apparently where the king's family, the pharaoh's family, would bathe, which is a pretty bold and risky move. So one day, the Egyptian king's daughter comes down to the river to to bathe, and she hears something in the reeds. She instructs one of her attendants to go over and find out what's in that basket. They open the basket, and it's this little Hebrew baby boy. They take compassion on it, but they know he needs to eat, And so he's going to need a wet nurse. Now, the mother of the child, the one that put him in the basket, sent her six-year-old daughter down to the other side of the river just to watch and see what would happen. She sees the Egyptian women take the baby out and say, what are we going to do with this baby? We need a wet nurse. The little girl says, I know one. I know a Hebrew woman who will nurse this baby. And they say, great. And they give the baby to her. Actually, they say, bring the wet nurse to us. So she goes and gets the baby's mother, who then serves as the baby's nurse for the next period of time. When the baby grows up enough that it doesn't need uh, a nurse anymore, the baby boy is given to the Pharaoh's daughter and named Moses and raised as part of the royal family in Egypt. So here's Moses, this Hebrew young man, part of the race that is being enslaved by Egypt, but he grows up with all of the advantages and the luxuries of being part of the royal family. Then one day when Moses is 20 years old, he does something that changes his life forever. What he does is he bucks the trend. He bucks the trend on a radically personal level. As a member of the royal family, picture this. He's the member of the royal family he's walking through the kingdom that is ultimately his, really. It's his family's kingdom. And he notices, he witnesses a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian slave master. And something inside Moses just snaps at that moment somehow he has learned about his story he has learned about who he is that he's really a hebrew right and he's understood maybe even a little bit about who he's called to be so he sees this hebrew slave being mercil- mercilessly beaten and he reacts he kills the egyptian slave master and he buries him in the sand The next day, he's walking around the kingdom again, and he sees two Hebrew slaves in a fistfight. And he goes in to break it up. And they don't like him either. And one of them says to him, what are you going to do? Kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And so the word is out, right? He's caught. He's been seen. The word reaches the Pharaoh who instructs that Moses should be killed. And then Moses has to flee into the desert. He's not a slave right? But neither is he really part, truly part of the elite Egyptian class, and he knows it, and they know it. He's demonstrated it by killing a soldier of Egypt, and so he has to run into the desert where for 60 years this grandson of the king in one country serves as a shepherd in a foreign country. And probably a lot of you know the rest of the story of Moses because the big scenes in his life actually come later. But I want to make one observation about this early scene from Moses' life that relates to this idea of bucking the trend. It seems to me that the easiest trends to buck, the easiest cultural trends, patterns to resist, the easiest values to criticize, the easiest behaviors to bash are the ones that are the farthest away from us personally. The idea might make us mad, but frankly, it's not affecting us personally. Those are the easiest ones for us to say, that's terrible, that's wrong, and not get involved with that. The closer trends get to home, the more difficult it is for us to be honest about them. Wouldn't you agree? the more difficult it is for us to navigate a faithful path through these trends, the more difficult it is for us to be in the world but not become part of the world. But the hardest trends for us to reject, the most difficult trends for us to be honest, real, and and, um, faithful about rejecting are the ones which will cost us personally. Those parts of our life that we might think those aren't very good, but everybody else seems to be okay with them, and so they must basically be kind of acceptable. Those parts of our life that if, if we were to push back on them, if we were to make an issue of them, if, if we were to refuse to participate in a system that is dependent upon these trends, it would cost us, and it would cost us on a personal level. Maybe we'd lose friends at school if we actually resisted certain trends. Maybe we'd lose our job if we didn't fall into line with the accepted ethic of the company. Right? Maybe it would put us at real odds with those we care about the most, our family. And among other things, it would make Thanksgiving this week really awkward if we were to seriously resist and push back. Maybe life would get harder because we follow Jesus. Maybe it would get harder because we buck the cultural trend at a level that actually costs us personally. Now, maybe Moses was acting impulsively. He's 20 years old. I don't know of a single author that points to his reaction to seeing that injustice as the right thing to do. Nobody says it was right for him to kill that Egyptian slave driver. It was clearly an immature response. But what challenges me about this scene from Moses' life is that he sees injustice, and he doesn't look the other way. That's what challenges me about it. Nobody would have noticed if Moses would have looked the other way. Nobody would have blamed him for looking the other way. All the Egyptians were benefiting from a slave class. He is royalty, after all. Why is he going to get involved with this? Nobody going to... Um, think anything wrong of a a slave master getting heavy-handed on a slave, especially somebody who's at the top of the food chain and is benefiting from that. And Moses, if he were to get involved, he risks everything. So he has two choices. He can put himself first. He can exalt his sovereign self And he can protect his personal comfort and his social advantages. And he can just look the other way. He can just keep on walking, pretend that he didn't see anything that was wrong. Or he can respond to injustice. He can buck the trend, even though it will cost him personally, it will risk him losing everything. He chooses option B. And in one sense, that's exactly what happens to Moses. He loses everything. He loses everything. There are a lot of details in the story, but the truth is that once Moses crosses this line and acts in ag- against injustice in his culture and acts for the oppressed, life is never, ever the same for him, ever again. From that moment on, his life is marked by exile from power for the 60 years that he's in the desert, conflict with power when he returns to Egypt as the leader of the Hebrew people to free them from slavery, and then the relentless pressures of leading all these free slaves as they wander around in the desert for 40 more years. In the end, Moses doesn't even get into the promised land. Angela Henning is writing the curriculum for our kids' classes for this series. And she wrote me this week, and she said, she asked a really key question. She said, how real can I get with the kids? I said, what do you mean, how real can you get with the kids? And she said, well, life gets real really hard for moses and it stays really hard for moses there's no happy ending at the end of this story i think it's such an important observation it's important for us to remind ourselves of this that if you push back against the trends of this culture it will cost you it has cost everyone who has ever faithfully followed god right You probably remember that the disciples of Jesus don't retire to Mediterranean resorts. That's not part of the story. That's not the way the story ends. They are killed by their own government. It gets hard and it stays hard for those who are willing to confront the culture in its brokenness. There is real adversity from the outside and bucking trends of a self-centered culture, ultimately means that we need to address the selfishness that's within as well. It can't just be that and that. It's got to be this too, this adversity that comes from the inside. And that's a decision to resist the selfishness that's within. That's a decision to embark on a long and really challenging journey towards holiness, towards actually becoming the person you were created to be, towards actually denying the sovereign self when everything in you is kind of wired around that broken reality that says, I'm the most important person. It's a journey that ends with a a definition of success that looks very different from the world's definition of success. It's success as holiness. It's success as persevering to the end. It's success as not giving in to hate or fear. And its success as becoming like Jesus, through and through. So I've asked Stephanie just to play for a minute and give us a minute to rest in this, and and I'm asking the Holy Spirit for the grace that I need to see myself accurately. Um, we are called to speak to our culture. We are called to engage our culture with a better alternative. Part of the reason that that hasn't been very successful in the history of the church is because we haven't done a very good job also addressing the selfishness within. And so it seems ingenuine. It seems uh, hypocritical. So may we have the courage to look at ourselves Lovingly, but truthfully, and to surrender the part of us that needs to be surrendered to Jesus. Let's just take a minute and, and uh, give give God some room to speak to us. lens do I need to consider looking through, looking at my life through? Not my own fabricated, presents itself, but what's another lens that I should look through in order to see myself in a way that's accurate for the sake of submitting myself more fully to you and receiving grace that I need to become like you want me to be. Please give us grace, Lord, to be honest and real with ourselves, um, to take seriously the depth of our need for you. Uh, We cannot be good or different by ourselves. And I pray for grace that you, yourself, and your love would fill us up and enable us to become the people you're creating us to be. I pray that we would live differently that um, we would sacrifice and engage in things even if they cost us personally because of a a higher standard and a, a bigger and better reason for life than personal comfort. Please shape us where it matters the most in our hearts. May we be all yours. And may we engage culture from a place of authenticity and compassion and truth, and willingness uh, to sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.